I suspect all of you at some point or another have engaged in a game of connect the dots, right? I don't know if it's actually a game, but it's, we'll call it a game. Can you live with that? You know, the, the, the sheet that has all the various dots, they're numbered and you sequentially connect them with a line and what emerges is the picture that the author intended for you to see. You're kind of drawing uh, what he wants you to see. Well, I want to use that concept this morning to help you see what God intends for us to see in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. We're going to connect the dots this morning. So take your Bibles, open them to Ephesians chapter 3. And to do so, I want to begin with a quick review and a question. The review is this. This is week number 17 in our series through Ephesians. We started last fall, and we're looking mainly at the in Christ phrases, especially in chapters 1 through 3. And we've been able to see all of God's incredible, wonderful work done for his people through and in Christ. The question then is this, what is Paul's first response to all that God does for his people through Christ? Like, what's the first thing he does or says? What's his initial reaction to all of this doctrine, this truth, this, this wonderful reality that's ours in Christ? What's Paul's first and initial reaction? The answer is dot one, and the answer is prayer. I, I've been struck by this multiple times in reading Ephesians 1 through 3 that Paul does not give us a command or an injunction or an exhortation. He just says, I, I want to pray for you. He does this in chapter 1 and he does it now in chapter 3. Notice the prayer he prays for these Ephesian believers on the heels of all that he's described about God's work. Verse 14, Ephesians 3, follow along with me. He says, for this reason, and you'll notice that's a repeated phrase from verse 1. We saw that verses 2 through 13 were kind of an interruption of Paul. He kind of interrupted himself and, and went on again about God's miraculous work in the church. Also, chapters 1 and 2, this, these words, for this reason, just kind of keep pointing back to all that God has done. For this reason, here's the posture of prayer that Paul takes. I bow my knees before the Father now, the next verse is really a modifying phrase of God the Father. I can't spend long here. We could probably spend a week or two just in this phrase. It's a beautifully loaded phrase. I do want to give you one word about what it means because it could be a little maybe confusing. Maybe it's, um, you're not sure quite what, how this unfolds. But he says that from the Father, every family in heaven and on earth is named. And you might say, well, is that a universalistic teaching? Is everyone just automatically a Christian? What's he saying there? Let me just give you the, the at least of what he's saying. And again, we could expand on this, but I don't want to spend much time here. The word family there is just the word for lineage. And I think essentially what he's saying is this. Every father draws their model from God the Father. That's what they should do. And that's what many do. But he's saying it's from God the Father that, that every lineage, every father then draws his model and so that's just the bare minimum of what Paul is saying. He's really um, you know, magnifying and 
kind of extolling God the Father's virtues of blessing his children through Christ. So we can say more. Maybe we will on a podcast one day. Just understand, he's saying here, not that everyone is saved. He's saying God the Father is the model for every other father and family. And of course, it's God the Father then that he says this in verse 16. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. There's the real gist of his prayer. If you had to circle one verse, what is Paul praying in response to all that God does in Christ for us? It's verse 16. This is the second time he's kind of mentioned this. And so he says, I'm praying that you'll be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then that prayer reveals itself or those answers kind of displays itself in all three ways. I think this is what he does in the rest of the text. Look with me at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So these are all things that flow out of this essential prayer for being strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So again, just to make sure you're, you're tracking with me in this text, there really is one prayer. It's verse 16, and then three things flow out of that. Let me tell you what I think you are in, in some different words. I think, first of all, he's praying they'll be strengthened with power internally and spiritually First of all, to experience Christ's presence residing and ruling in their life. You see this in verse 17? He says he's praying that they'll have the strength and power from God's spirit inwardly so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. The word dwell is the word for reside. There's no hint of Christ being a guest. We're not ushering him to the front door saying, welcome to the living room, here's some coffee and tea, and then we exit him out. That's not what's happening here. He's given the keys to the house. He's a, a permanent resident and he's in charge. Amen. Paul is praying that they'll have strength internally and spiritually to see that Christ residing and ruling in their life. Second thing he's praying is that they'll grasp Christ's love. Now you see a, a reference to love in 17, 18, and 19, don't you? You especially see it in 18 that they'll have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So he wants a church-wide experience here pertaining to Christ's love and from four angles, its breadth, its length, its height, and its depth. And can we just be honest here and transparent? We could spend months on this verse. We could spend a month on the breadth of God's love, a month on the length of God's love. I mean, this is an inexhaustible theological concept, God's love for us. And so I'm shortchanging this without a doubt today. But I just want you to see that this is one of the things Paul is praying, that they will supernaturally, internally, by the Spirit, begin to grasp and, and comprehend Christ's love. And by the way, he's asking for something here that he knows is not humanly possible. Do you see verse 19? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? He wants them to know something that they can't really know. That's Christ's love. And we're going to say more about why he says that in a moment. But just understand, this is what he's praying. They'll have strength internally and spiritually to see Christ as the resident one in charge of their life, to grasp Christ's love from every angle, and then thirdly, to overflow with God's fullness. You see this in verse 19? 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Somewhat even repetitious there. To be filled with the fullness of something. Well, of course, if you're filled, you have the fullness, right? And you may think that prayer is out of bounds. Like, man, how can a believer have the fullness of God? But it's not out of bounds. I'd remind you that in Colossians 1.19, Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He says this again in Ephesians chapter one, that in Christ was all the fullness of God. So guess what, church? Hear this overwhelming news. If you're in Christ, you have access to all the fullness of God. That's astounding. That should bowl you over. And this is what Paul is praying. Paul is praying they'll have strength spiritually and internally to these three ends. To know Christ as the resident authority in their life, the ruling one. To grasp God's love from every angle and to experience the fullness of God. Now, if I were to try to summarize this prayer, I would say he's probably in, in a very succinct fashion just repeating much of what he said in the previous chapters. This is really kind of a summation of all of God's work in Christ for us. It seems to be very similar to his prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. In fact, in, those, in that prayer, you find a reference to God's spirit, to the inner being, to the fullness of God. You find similar concepts and words. So I think Paul is in some way being repetitious, but not in, a, in an annoying way. He's reminding us that his first response to all that God does in Christ for his people is to pray that they will know and experience that more deeply and more fully. What a great prayer, amen? I mean, when I read this, I'm convicted about my own prayer life. Often my prayers, and I've told you this before, and I'll own this, they're just way too horizontal. We're praying for Aunt Susie's toe, Uncle Bill's financial condition, Brother Harry's you know, pet. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for those, but I will be frank with you. The horizontal prayers about issues of life should follow the vertical issues about knowing all that God has done for his people in Christ. And the reason our horizontal prayers are often lame is because we don't pray the vertical prayers. And if we were to pray this for our people, if you were to look at the person in front of you, beside you, behind you, you know some of their names. If you were to pray this for them, that the eyes of their heart would be opened, as Ephesians 1 says, that they would grasp God's love from every angle, that they would make and see Christ as the permanent resident, as the ruling one in charge, that they would see and experience the fullness of God. Then God answers that prayer. Wow. What a beautiful church. Amen. So that's what he's doing. He's, he's asking for people to pray Vertical prayers about paramount issues. It's important that you understand something here. This prayer is not anything you can do anything about. You can't answer this prayer. Now, I'm not saying there are other prayers you can answer, but I will say this. There are what we call ordained means that God will use in answering prayer. So sometimes if someone has a need and then God moves you to give to that need, God's used you to meet a need in prayer. Does that make sense? We call that an ordained means. It could be in a sickness situation through a doctor. It may be through a financial means, or maybe you bring a meal to someone. The only ordained means by way by which this happens is God. 
You, you can't answer this, which is exactly why he prays this first. Because he's praying, what's this? Not for some external attachment. He's not praying for something natural to happen. He's praying for something incredibly supernatural. He wants to see a divinely spiritual procedure in the hearts of the Ephesian believers. Only God can do that. And by the way, all of God is doing that in this prayer. This procedure is very Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all mentioned here. So catch this, church. All of God is involved in answering this prayer. What a storehouse of power. What a resource for the believer to know the Father and the Son and the Spirit are actively engaged in answering this prayer. Man, does it make you want to pray this, doesn't it? I hope so. I'm praying for you. Your elders every week pray this, these prayers for you. Yes, we know your needs, at least many of them, I should say. We pray for you. We do pray some horizontal requests. But the first thing we do every Tuesday morning is we pray that God will strengthen you internally and spiritually to know him like never before. I experienced a moment in which God answered this prayer in my life. I think if I were to chart it out, there may be a few moments when God has intervened in my life in an answer to this kind of prayer. But probably the top one or two would be back in 1987. It was at my ordination service. I was just 23 years old. I just turned 23, in fact. And I won't go into the details of the day. There's a you know, six-hour examination. If you pass, they bring you back in the evening for an ordination service. I got word about two o'clock that I had passed. And so um, I came back at seven for an opportunity to be charged by the word of God from men of God and then be prayed over. And the first part took maybe 30 to 40 minutes. Then they called the three of us who had passed that day to the front and we took a knee on the altar. It's like a platform, a little larger than this, but we just took a knee there and we, the men then would filter by one by one and they lay their hands on you, right on your head, and uh, they would pray as long as they wanted to for you. These were all men that had spoken into your life. They, they, they may not have known me personally, but they were all men within the church context and the university context. And, and so there were probably 70 plus men there. So after the first 30, 40 minutes, I come forward. I take a knee, knee by the, uh, the altar. It's in the same building, by the way, where I received Christ. I remember accepting Christ, trusting the gospel in that very same place. And so it was quite momentous, first of all, just to be in that same area I'm kneeling down and one by one men come in. They put their hands on your head and, and they don't just like lay their hands. I mean, they, they grab your head. <laughs> I mean, they're holding my head. You can feel the pressure, honestly. And then they pray and some men would pray five or six minutes, some 10. We were there two plus more hours. Within about the first 10 minutes, uh, I'm, I'm just weeping. I don't know why. I, I, I'm sensing God's love for me. I'm sensing the weight of this calling on my life. I'm sensing the, uh, the, the beauty of the gospel. As, not like I do now, to be frank with you, but at 23, it was like, you just you're, think, the Holy Spirit is revealing and doing things that I had never before had done in my heart internally. 
Then I began to sweat. And at the end of those two plus hours of just men coming by and praying, I mean, my shirt literally was just wet. Um, I was still weeping. It, it was probably the most memorable moment of the Holy Spirit's work in my life that I've ever had, just to be frank with you. There have probably been a few and several that look back like, wow, that was a, a remarkable moment when God showed up. This was probably the top one or two. And I thought this week, this was God answering that prayer. And I just, just tell you that not to put me on a pedestal. Uh, I put my pants on like you do. I'm a, a, bitty, I'm, a, I'm, a I'm a human, I'm telling you. Ask my wife and kids, they'll tell you. Uh, I'm very human. God met me in that moment and did what only he could do. Opened the eyes of my heart, helped me grasp things that could not be done humanly or naturally or externally, but only be done spiritually, supernatural, and divinely. That's what we should pray for each other. Now, the question I'm left with is this. Why do we pray those kinds of prayers? Paul tells us in the last two verses of chapter three. Let me read them for you. Beginning in verse 20. This is the second dot, by the way. It's God's glory. I'll just go ahead and give you that up front. But notice how Paul here moves right to this doxology after praying this for those believers. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, and when you read that, don't just read over it because Paul had just asked a pretty large thing, didn't he? In essence, they'd be filled with the fullness of God. He's saying God can do even more than that. Wow, this is an incredible uh, God that we're serving, that we're praying to. He can do more than that according to the power at work within us, which is his power, by the way, the Holy Spirit is to this God with this power. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And the church said, amen. You know what Paul's thinking? He's thinking, when God answers this prayer, it will be a beautiful avenue for his glory in the church. I mean, Paul is picturing in his mind the work of God happening and then God being glorified and maximized in a way that won't happen without this. So he knows full well that God answering this prayer is one of the ways that God will get maximum glory in the church. So this is why he prays this prayer. In other words, the prayer is connected to God's glory. It's not really designed to make your life easier or to you to get your way. It's designed for God to get maximum glory because here's what Paul understands. And let me just kind of lengthen the answer to the question but why Paul prays this way. We'll call it our take-home answer this week. Can we do that? Here's the real nutshell of the sermon, the nutshell of this text. It's because the body of Christ is the avenue for the continual maximization of God's brilliance. Now, brilliance is just a, another word for glory. You could use the word worth, weight. You could use the word, ma a word majesty, power, beauty. But I chose brilliance in this case, and it's a good word for glory because God could, could cause that. And so his brilliance is clearly seen. And Paul knows this, by the way. He's mentioned this already in chapter 
2, verse 7, that the church is to be the, the display of God's work for eternity. He mentioned this in 3, 7, or excuse me, 3, 10 as well. And in that verse, he says that the church is, is to be the display of God's um, brilliance to the heavenly bodies. So it's not a new thought that Paul would end with this doxology and say, hey, it's the church where God's work is to be clearly seen. And he says here, through all generations, forever and ever, same as he does in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians uh, 1. Same as he does in Romans 11. He's always kind of interrupting himself with these doxological moments of just erupting in praise because he's thinking vertically, he's thinking eternally. And so he's praying with God's glory in mind. That's why he wants God to do things in the hearts of the Ephesians that only God can do. Now, this is the first time that Paul has used the phrase in the church in one of his doxologies. Again, doxologies aren't new to Paul. Romans 11, Ephesians 1, other places. But this is the only time that you see the phrase in the church. What's going on with that? Why would Paul say, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus? Let me give you a possible reason. We know that God gives glory in Christ. But that's not hard for us to see because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's in time and space. And so when Paul would say in the Corinthian letters that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, we clearly understand that when Christ is lifted up, when, when people see Christ, that's glorifying to God. It's a real space and time um, process, we'll call it. Here, here's what I think is happening. Now that Christ has ascended, where does that real space and time process occur now? In the church. Let me share with you this simple truth, that every time Christ is magnified in the church, God is glorified in the heavens. This is why every church should be about proclaiming Christ crucified. This is why every church should be about proclaiming him and teaching and admonishing every man and woman with wisdom. This is why we should serve and proclaim Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Because when Christ is magnified, God is glorified. And in those moments when that occurs in real time and space, we maximize God's glory in the church. Paul here is saying, these are the two arenas where this really occurs. And by the way, don't think church building. You are the building. You are God's dwelling place. So when God is, when God is, when Christ is magnified in your life, in your small group, in our gathering, regardless of that location, God is glorified. And then people see that and they're drawn like, wow, that's brilliant. How does God do that? This is what Paul is after. It's, it's in some ways very mysterious and intriguing because while these are two separate arenas in one sense, in the church and in Christ, they're both are time and space sensitive. I also think Paul is probably here alluding to this, that they are one in the same. Because after all, whose body is the church? Christ's body. So, so, so you can't have one without the other in one sense. And yet, I do think there's some differences there, and that's why Paul kind of includes this phrase. 
So just understand the ultimate end game of Paul's prayer is the glory of God. And again, can we just kind of put this on a level? We get this. Man, this just makes our prayers, uh, this escalates the importance and priority of them. Please, church, pray for our physical needs and external matters and horizontal issues. Yes, but please, not before you pray for people's spiritual needs and their heart issues because God's glory matters. And when people see change that can only be brought about by God, his brilliance, his glory is maximized. Let's pray to that end and on that basis. I'm left with one more question. I see what we're to do in response to all that God has done for us in Christ. We're to pray for each other that we'll have a deeper, fuller understanding of that. That's our first reaction. And I see now why I should pray that way because God's glory matters so much. The church is the avenue for the continual maximization of God's glory. So we want to pray that for each other, church-wide. But I'm left with this question now. How does that happen? Like, What would that look like in 2021 for us to pray on the basis of God's glory being paramount, what would, need to, would look, what it look like? How would that then occur? And I think there's an answer to that question. I do think it unfolds in Ephesians 4 through 6, by the way. There's a lot of practical teaching still to come as we unpack the rest of this book in time. I think it's pointing to glory in God and living out this doctrine. But I think there's even an umbrella word for all of that that is to come that would answer the question of how does this happen then? And it's the word that I think would summarize really a lot of chapters one through three. And it's this word, reconciliation. Now we can disagree on maybe what one word would best summarize chapters one through three. I would contend this would be a top tier word. There are probably others. It's hard to get you know whole chapters into one word. But I would contend that if you were to read chapters one through three at one sitting, you're gonna see the brilliant work of God described in killing hostility between Jew and Gentile, breaking down the walls and barriers and uniting into one new man, his people. That's reconciliation. And I personally believe reconciliation is the primary way that God gets glory in the church. Now, it's important that we stay textually accurate here. So I want to talk about the meaning of this word reconciliation. In the text, especially chapters 1 through 3, the textual primary understanding of reconciliation is positional before God. Are you hearing me clearly? This is a text about God's work for his people in Christ. And so it is a primarily, and I would use the word textual, you could even say exegetical understanding, that first and foremost, God does a positional reconciling of us to himself through Christ. This is what I would say is the explicit meaning of it, or the plain and textual meaning. We'd say this, because of God's work in Christ, he now saves all kinds of people. It's not just a Jewish thing anymore. Amen, church? 
It's Jew and Gentile. It's all kinds of people. Revelation tells us that at the end of time, there'll be people around God's throne from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Hallelujah. And that has been a very centering verse for this church for a number of years. It affects how we invest in missions, both locally and globally. It's really affected our desire to see God send either a group to plant or a missionary, some type of person annually. We've got sending teams who support our um, partners uh, beyond just the, the large group. There's a specific small teams who help and communicate. A lot, of, a lot in this church is really centered around this truth, that God is saving people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Amen. So God saves all kinds of people, not just people like you or like me. He saves every kind of person. That's really the, the gist of the textual, explicit understanding of reconciliation. God is reconciling a people to himself from every kind of person. There is also an applicational meaning, though. What I would call would be an implicit takeaway from the passage. I wouldn't say it's between the lines, but I would say it's less explicit than the first understanding. And that is that there is a, a reconciliation that takes place between people as well. We would say this is more of the horizontal aspect. I might say it like this. God not only saves all kinds of people, God unites all kinds of people. You see, when God saves people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, he doesn't leave them disjointed, disconnected, outside of relationships. He doesn't leave them separated God says he brings them together into one new man, into a spiritual family, into a dwelling place. So guess what? In the body of Christ, there is vertical reconciliation and there's horizontal reconciliation. Both are only possible in Christ. But make no mistake, church, both are possible because of Christ. In the plainest of language, hear this. God shows his love to us in salvation. And then he empowers us by his spirit to share that love in humility. That's both types of reconciliation. It's a vertical issue first, then a horizontal one. And so if you desire God's brilliance to be most maximized, watch this, let his love for you cause you to love those not like you. Let me give you a few phrases that I think should be circling the airport of your brain right now. Strive for unity. Lead and follow humbly. In fact, I'll just tell you what I think, and I've told you this before. I think it's harder to follow than to lead. It takes more humility most of the time to be a sheep and to hear your elders and your pastors than often it does to be an elder or pastor. I think humility is required for both. Don't get me wrong. But I've been in places where it's not my call to make. And I found it very difficult at times just to follow. And I've learned from that. You know, often it's harder to follow than to lead. We need great humility among the body to lead and to follow. We should strive for unity. We should see others' needs as more important than our own. 
We should look to their interests. This is what Philippians 2 calls the church to. We should pursue peace, not division or argument or debate. Brothers and sisters, remember this, that when the church shines brightly with unity, God's brilliance is seen with clarity. Which means the opposite is true. When the church can't get along, stay on mission about what really matters, when there's just divisiveness and unnecessary brokenness, the world sees that and they don't see God's brilliance. They say, well, I could put that together. (laughs) I could cause that to happen. But when the world looks at a church filled with people from all kinds of backgrounds, preferences, ethnicities, cultures, likes, dislikes, professions, and pasts, and yet sees those folks banding together in unity for God's mission. They say, wow, how in the world do they do that? And we say, we don't, God does. He unifies us. He makes us one in Christ. And we pray to that end, and we work to that end. I was convictingly reminded of this last Thursday, of how easy it is to make church about yourself or to want it to be like you like it. I was sitting probably right about where you were, Jeff, maybe Zach. Zach, right? Good. And then behind me and further to your right on the end of that row was another gentleman. We were here for a prayer gathering in preparation for the Will Graham celebration coming this October to our metro area. And so we just hosted a prayer event for people all over the metro area. And so I was part of that. And Taylor led us in some songs to begin. They gave some instructions. And then Taylor began to just lead us in worship. And I started singing. And I loved to sing. I loved to worship. And uh, behind me, to my right, another gentleman started to sing and worship. But I had no idea what he was doing. And I thought, actually, at first, I thought he had a service dog because there's some bells started, like a tambourine. I thought maybe his dog had gotten up and kind of shaken, and maybe then the collar, you know, has some kind of trinkets or bells on it and made some noise, but the, the bells kept going. I realized he had some kind of tambourine or some kind of, like, block with maybe bells on it. You know, you get in elementary school, and you're in the band, and you just kind of beat it, you know, that kind of thing. But it wasn't in any kind of time at all. I mean, it was so out of rhythm, and I was like, man, I, I can't hardly hear like what he's, what, uh, you know, what Taylor's, where we're, I became kind of distracted. And then on top of that, he began to sing usually a word or two behind everyone else. It was in a key that doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, in between certain lines, he just would yell out, uh, you know, worship words like hallelujah. And I do that often, but he was very loud and um, at odd times and the other words. And so I found myself, you know, Beyond distracted, I found myself critical. I was like, who does this, this guy needs to get with the program? Doesn't he know how I worship? Doesn't he know you can't, you know, beat a tambourine off rhythm? You got, you got to stay with the, with the music, dude. I'm having all these thoughts. And at that very moment, right there in that seat, and God's spirit just flipped on the light and showed these spider webs in the corners of my heart. Like the basement light came on where I don't think many people go, Right? God's like, I'm there. I'm dwelling in your life by faith. I'm residing as the one in charge. I'm not liking what I'm seeing. I mean, the Holy Spirit arrested me. 
He pressed into my chest to worship like you. And so in that moment, I just was very convicted. And so my first, my immediate response was, God, yeah, that's, you're right. I'm, I'm wrong about this. I'm sorry. And I just asked God, say, God, forgive me. I, I don't, that's not right. It's wicked. It's a terribly carnal, selfish, selfish attitude. And so I just asked God to forgive me, and he did. Don't you love the forgiveness of God? It just washes you. And suddenly, all the things that I felt were frustrating, I began to join in with him. I sang louder. Not to cover him up, but to join in with him. He was still in some key. I don't know what it is to this day. But you know what? Man, I was singing with a brother. I started kind of patting my leg. We were probably both out of time. I don't know. Um, and, and God united our hearts to worship really what mattered. And that was that God had saved us both by the gospel and put us in Christ. And we were really different. In fact, I didn't turn around and look at him during the situation. That would have been worse, right? But when I left, I did glance and he had a lot of hair. I don't have any hair, hardly, right? He had a long beard. I can't even grow a beard. I mean, he and I dressed really differently. We no doubt had different likes. We had different personalities. We had different responses. And here's what I thought was interesting. As I left, I thought, wow, God is so brilliant. I want to make it about worship because we all like the same stuff. And God says, no, I'm so powerful. I can have you worship when it's not just like the person next to you. Like, oh, I get it, God. We worship you in the middle of our differences. You, you, you have united us in spite of how we're so different and caused us to worship the one God who has saved us by his son. And man, my heart was just overwhelmed, yes, with conviction and forgiveness, but like, I see now, God. I make it too much about what I want and what I think should be, and, and I left. And that became the most beautiful sound I heard all week. Some guy out of tune and out of time, but God correcting me and uniting me with him to worship the Lord in the middle of a lot of differences. You know how that happens? Only from God by prayer. You can't make that happen. I can't make you enjoy the differences in this room. You can sit in your selfishness like I did and analyze and criticize, or you can realize God has done something in the hearts of people all across this room that unites us. It's what he's done for us in Christ. And you can pray for them that they'll have an even fuller and deeper experience in that, and they'll pray for you. And together we'll worship the Lord because those kind of prayers point us to his glory. And God is most glorified when Christ is magnified. So can we, in the middle of our differences, keep magnifying Christ so that God is glorified? Church, join me in that, would you? Join me in magnifying Christ so that God is glorified. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.